Yeah, so I'm John, grateful to be here, um, and I want us to dive right in. Um, I'm not going to be doing an exposition like the rest of the guys. I'm going to spend my time more on just four pastoral reflections that have come uh, uh, alive in my heart and my soul uh, within the past few months. But I do want to have a text that will help to guide us through. So if you would, open your Bibles and let's start. And we'll be in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and it reads like this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not Arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception. It is necessary to silence them, for they are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths or the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Father, uh, we ask that you would uh, take your word, you would use it to shape and to form us, and that we would be those men, Father, that work hard to make sure the message that we proclaim is sound, Father. We want to be an example of good works, Lord. We want our teaching to be matched with integrity and dignity, and we pray that you would do that. Father, help us not to be so concerned about caring for your family, Lord, that we neglect our own, the one that you've placed in our care. Help us to see, Lord, that these two don't compete, but one leads to the other. We pray that you would help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you all to take your seats. Um, I've been a pastor uh, just as long as I've been married. In April of 07, Um, I got engaged to my wife in the same month that I got offered a position to serve as a pastor to start to fundraise. And 
August of 07, I started as a pastor, and in November of 2007, I got married. Um, I haven't known one without the other, and the reason that I say that is because uh, for the duration of my marriage and pastoral ministry, uh, I've been better at one than the other, and it hasn't been the right one. When people ask me to talk about myself, I usually lead off um, and start not with the fact that I'm a husband, but that I'm the pastor of a church. In the 11 years that my wife and I have been married, we've been in counseling no less than five times, but there were three times where things really came at a head and we were about to lose our marriage. Um, and the crazy thing was none of those three times surrounded some serious scandal. All three of those times were just these subtle things that crept in and we said, how did we get here? And 2011, we uh, sat down with a counselor in my home and just talked through the effects of dealing with unexplained infertility and my insensitivity and inability to help shepherd my wife through that time. Uh, in 2015, uh, we sat down in the office of a counselor um, as we worked through the death of my brother and just how that event taking place six weeks before the launch of our church made it very clear where my priorities were. And in 2018, after the first birthday of our adopted daughter, uh, we sat in the home of friends of ours and they helped us talk through uh, what we had waited on for 10 years that was a blessing that turned out to be a burden that threatened our marriage. All of these have been subtle. None have been the result of this great scandal, but all of them put us in a place where we were like, how did we get here? And so as I thought back, I just tried to do a diagnostic, right? Uh, at the start of this summer, um, I took a sabbatical, one month off from my church, from life, from writing, from traveling, from speaking, from counseling, to just be at home with my wife and my daughter. And these were the three holes that I felt like that I saw. One, um, I didn't have uh, any vision for my marriage. Uh, my vision uh, was primarily anti-vision, the avoidance of scandal. Um, and the avoidance of bad is not the same thing as the presence of good. Two, I felt like my pastoral duties and my duties as a husband were constantly in competition. And for the past 10 years, I've always felt like I've been in this lose-lose. I've always felt like I had to choose one or the other. And after choosing, I always felt like I made the wrong choice. Three. I felt drained, discouraged, and like I never did enough. And when I tried to do more, I felt exhausted. And being volleyed in between exhaustion and discouragement is not a good place to be. And so I spent my time blaming everything and everyone. I felt like the sky was falling. And I thought, man, this is frustrating because it's as a result of the infertility, the death of my brother, the employers that I worked for that didn't model a good church life balance, the people that I pastor that make things hard, the um, uh, lack of 
gratitude for my wife. All of these things, I just felt like the sky was falling. Uh, but then I came across Ecclesiastes 10:18, and it says this. Because of laziness, the roof caves in. And because of negligent hands, the house leaks. The sky was not falling. The roof was caving in, and the rain was not to blame. Everybody's house gets rained on, but not everybody's roof caves in. External circumstances were not my problem. It was an internal complacency that disregarded or forgot that maintenance is necessary for any and every relationship. So these are just my current reflections over the course of the past few months. At the end of the day, I do not come up here and stand up here as an expert. Uh, when Jared asked me to talk about this, I felt like, man, I'm not the guy. DA wrote a book on marriage, right? Yo, yo, I wrote a book on prayer. Let me talk about prayer. Uh, but I think God in his wisdom does this to force us to drive us to his word. So here's my main point. If you don't walk away with anything else, I want you to hear this. Um, the normal pastor is and has to be an extraordinary family man. The normal pastor is an extraordinary family man. Family does not get in the way of ministry. Your family shapes your ministry. Reflection one, vision. If you don't know what you have, you'll misuse what you've got. If you don't know what you have, you'll misuse what you've got. We've got an intern at our church um, now, and he's, I, I think he's like 21, right? So he was born in like 1998, um, if my math is right. Uh, so there's times where we just constantly talk about things that we used to have. And I remember uh, we started to talk with him about uh, like what, what, uh, what the first iPods looked like. Um, and he like, like he like gets it and he's like, kind of like, what's this? Can you imagine starting to hold something like that in your first time and you don't know what it is. When you don't know what something is, it becomes very clear this. Your behavior will never rise above your vision. Your behavior, how you act, will never rise above your vision. So with this iPod, if you don't know what it is and you look and you assume, well, it's got the time on it, so it's a clock. If you treat it as a clock, you're going to get very frustrated with it because it's heavy and it's bulky. And there's better ways to tell the time. And your frustration with it is not because of anything that's deficient in the iPod. Your frustration with it is because of the deficiency of your vision of that thing. And I feel the same is true with the family. We're frustrated because of our misuse of it. We're frustrated because we don't have a Vision, And so what I love what Paul does is he doesn't go right to behavior, but he, he takes us to vision, even with basic things about Christianity. 
Think of Romans 6. Paul starts off and says, what then? Should we sin so the grace may multiply? Absolutely not. And then he spends the rest of the chapter not just telling us not to sin, but giving us a vision of what it is that God has done. So here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to assume that just because we're a room full of Christians and pastors and we've read our Bible and we've read Ephesians 5 that we have a vision for marriage. One of the worst things that we can do is assume, and I feel like as pastors sometimes we move too quickly to correction and challenge, and in our assumptions we skip right over clarity. So what I want to do is I just want to bring a little bit of clarity by starting off and reminding all of us that the Bible is a book about a family. The Bible is a book about a family. It's a good God providing for the needs of his kid. The Bible starts off with God creating a nursery before he puts his kids in it. God's concerns for our problems and our needs predates our awareness of those concerns. And God cements this in the way that he creates Adam. He gives him all that he needs. There's no sin in the world. Six times in the first chapter, God says, it's good. And then he looks down, and before sin comes into the world, God says these two words. Adam, it's not good. And I can imagine him saying, God, what's not good? It's all good. Things are here. I'm free. There's no sin. And God looks down and says, Adam, it's not good for the man to be alone. So uncoerced, God brings up his need, and then God meets his need. Showing him that isolated living is incorrect living. And here's what I love. God did not just give Adam a companion. God gave him a commitment. God gave him a wife. God gave him a family because God's desire in representing or displaying himself to the world was not just that it would be through isolated humans, but that it would be through a family. The Bible is a book about a family, and Satan comes to attack and destroy God's family, and the first temptation is not this huge scandal. It's not like Adam and Eve are in the garden and Satan sends another woman. Satan actually tries to subtly convince them that he's there to bolster their union and connection. And it's this subtle creating of suspicion that God is some third party that you have to be wary of. I think this is why the Bible tells us to watch our life and our doctrine closely. Because it's not just the big scandals that will mess things up. It's the small thing. Never forget, tornadoes can topple houses. But so can termites. There's big warnings for tornadoes, not so much for Termites. There's big warnings for these great scandals, but not so much for these subtle things that can come and mess things up. And we know how the story plays out. They eat the fruit. 
the broken rules, uh, nothing more than a sign, a fractured relationship, the snowball of their sin avalanches into the world that we see in front of us today. And do you know what God does? God comes in the same way that he has, uncoerced, and meets not just their need, but our need. And the beauty of the gospel is that God sends his son to do what Adam and Eve could not do and to undo everything that they did. Jesus dies for our sin, raises from the dead, and ushers in this new age where people that are strangers can now be brought back in to God's family. And it's against this backdrop that marriage shines the brightest. In Ephesians 5, Paul gives the church detailed instruction about marriage. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. And at the end of the most detailed instruction or behavior that he gives to the church about marriage and family, do you know what he says in Ephesians 5.32? This mystery is profound. I ain't talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ, something that marriage and family was meant to point to. And so what he helps us see is that the purpose, not a purpose of marriage and family, the purpose is that this union would display Christ to the world. And so it's helpful if you and I think of marriage like a camera in its purpose. The purpose of a camera is to produce a picture. The purpose of a picture is so that people that are distanced from the actual event can enjoy the wonder, the grandeur, the joy that was experienced. The better the camera, the better the picture. The better the picture, the easier it is for somebody that's not far to enjoy. Marriage is the same way. The better the marriage, the better the picture. The better the picture, the easier it is for somebody that does not have a firsthand encounter with the unconditional love of God. Somebody that does not have an encounter with what grace looks like or feels like, the easier it is for them to experience that or to see that in the marriage and to say, I want more, and for that marriage and that union to be the thing that leads people to Christ. Marriage was put here, family was put here as a wrapping for the most important truth in the history of the universe. And I think when we talk about family, a lot of the error in our behavior comes from the fact that we don't have this vision or we don't keep this vision. And here's what I mean by that. Most of us don't have a vision for our family. We have an anti-vision, as if success is lined up in what we don't do. So our goal is, I don't want to cheat on my spouse. I don't want to beat my spouse. I don't want to neglect my spouse. As if somehow success at the end of the day is we're going to rejoice in all the stuff that we didn't do. Success is not just the avoidance of scandal. The avoidance of scandal is a step, but it's not the whole thing. Success is not just the absence of bad deeds. It's the presence of good ones. 
Here's a quick diagnostic, a quick way that you can know if you're living with vision or anti-vision. What do you and your spouse tend to fight about? What do you celebrate? Does this vision for displaying the beauty of God to a world that is far from him ever make its way into your fights or celebrations? Here's what I mean by this. A visionless family is one that rarely celebrates the gospel implications of their marriage. Nobody celebrates the avoidance of scandal. Can you imagine on your honeymoon or your anniversary, mine's getting ready to come up in a few months if I take my wife out to dinner and I tell her, hey, sweetheart, this is the 11th year in a row that I haven't cheated on you. Let's celebrate. family that's filled with vision has a ton to celebrate and to rejoice in. Look at how we used our home today to help somebody that doesn't know Christ see him. Look at how we've used our dinner table and our family to help people whose vision of a father was messed up because they grew up in a context where they just didn't have a dad in their home, but none of their friends had a dad in their home, and that had an impact on the way that they viewed God as father, that when they heard that, they didn't think good thoughts, they thought in different thoughts or frustrating thoughts, but look at how we used our home to change the way that somebody else views God as father. That's worth celebrating. This is the vision that we have to have. If we don't know what we have, we're not going to use what we got. But I want us to know this. Even if you have that right now or have had it at one time, vision leaks. Every marriage, every family is a cup with a hole in the bottom. I don't care how good whatever you have tastes in that cup. If it is liquid and there is a hole in the bottom, it will fall out. What are you doing to ensure that that vision stays or that it's constantly refilled? As pastors, one of the great blessings is the fact that we get to officiate weddings and attend them. We're constantly reminded, don't sleep on that. Don't not RSVP. Go, it's good for your soul. The reception, how you can skip that, especially if you don't like dancing. But the wedding, those are the joints. And then lastly, find ways to remind your family. How do you reinforce this with your wife, with your family? One of the things that my wife and I do is we have seven principles that govern our marriage. Just these things that we said, hey, we want these to set the tone for how it is that we live. And every year on our anniversary, we take time, go out to dinner and walk through each of those things and rejoice in ways that God has used this in those and pray that God would continue to use those things. So one vision, if you don't know what you have. Um, You're going to misuse what you've got.
that'll be the longest point too here. Family is not a competitor for ministry. Family is a qualifier and a sculptor. Family is not a competitor. It is both a qualifier and a sculptor. Titus 1, we'll start here in verse 5. I'll walk through this really quick. Verse 5, he says, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in each town, Paul is trying to tell them, hey, good leaders aren't hard to find, church, if you know where to look. And the very first place that you should look is how they manage their home. So he's going to use this word blameless at the beginning of verse 6 and verse 7. An elder must be blameless. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. And that word just means that they have a character that's unimpeachable. He starts off, and the first thing that he says is, look at their family. Look at the relationships. Look at the closest relationships that they have. So family becomes the priority because it's first here that he's a one-woman man. And this extends not just to how he treats his wife, but how he treats women. Is he faithful? Does he reserve his love and affection for her? Or is he flirtatious? Does he have boundaries? Is he a one-woman man emotionally, physically, if I can invent a world, internetually? Does his vision for sexuality, is it an anti-vision? I just don't want to cheat on my Or is it filled with vision that sexual intimacy is a picture of the celebration of God's covenant love? Sexual fidelity is a picture of God's faithfulness to us. Faithful children. They're not accused of wildness or rebellion. And we all know when it comes to raising kids... It is sowing and reaping. We control what we sow. We do not control what we reap. So it is possible to sow very good seed into your kids and not reap. That's God's result. But if you do not sow good seeds, you won't reap. And that is not providence. That's how God's laid things out. And so more than just Kids being Christians, which we can't control, I think what he's trying to speak to in all of this is what effect does this man's Christianity have on the people that are closest to him? Is this Christianity doing any good to the people that he spends the most time with or should spend the most time with? If it's not... What makes you think that his Christianity is going to do any good to people that he won't spend as much time with? And I know we've, we've heard all of that before, that the priority, it's the qualifier. But I think that the Bible gives us so much more. It's not just the qualifier, 
It's the sculptor. It shapes, right? You want to focus on the family. You want to instill and invest so much and see the importance and the vision of what God wants to do in the family because it will affect the way that you pastor. So this is not just the uh, uh, the first thing that it brings up, but when it talks about family, family is also the guiding metaphor or the foundation. So we see there in verse 7, as an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. So now what it does is it takes this concept of family and it applies it to God's household as a whole. And I think what's most important is that you and I realize which one is the shadow and which one is the fulfillment. What I mean by that is this. The earthly family is a metaphor and a picture of the eternal family that God wants to produce. One of those things will end, or not just end, one of those things will be transcended. Metaphors can be taken too far or not far enough, right? So we see, you know, the Bible calls Jesus the Lamb of God. There's a certain place where you have to cut that off. You take it too far and you'll get into some wacky stuff. Jesus is not going to have hooves, right? There are metaphors that we don't take far enough, and I think the family of God is one of those. That when Jesus Christ died to make us family, he made us family in a very real way. He didn't just make us play cousins, right? We had play cousins when, when, when we grew up. Folks that weren't really cousins, right? But it's, you called them that. Um, the Bible has no category for play cousins. This is real family. And so I think why the Bible lays such importance on the pastor being an extraordinary family man is because the, the way that he treats his family is to set the foundation for how he sees everybody that's a part of the family of God. This is helpful, y'all, when it comes to choosing pastors and elders in your church. One of the criteria that we've used in the course of the past 10 years is this. If I were to die, and on my deathbed, I had to leave my wife and my daughter in the care of somebody, would I be able, with my wife and my daughter, to confidently tell them, I will see y'all later. I'll see them in glory. If I have questions about where my wife and daughter would end up, that's not the kind of guy that I want to pastor and lead. I think we have to take the metaphor family as far as the Bible does. And it shapes us and it sculpts us. But it sculpts us in more than one way. My time is starting to wear down, and so I'll put it like this. 
the pastor deals with people that are presently the family of God and people that are presently enemies of God. So what Paul is going to tell Titus is, yo, I want you to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Why? Because these guys are ruining households. God created this family. The Bible is a book about this family. And there are a group of guys that are essentially doing what Satan did at the beginning and ruining these households. So what Paul tells Titus is you as a pastor, you have to treat these people like they're your family and you have to silence these guys, put a muzzle on them. You have to refute them, not just tell the church that they're wrong, but show the church how they're wrong. We have to protect them, but here's where this metaphor family comes in. Look at verse 13. For this reason, rebuke them sharply. Why? So that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. When we see the God of the Bible and we see the kind of father that he is, one of the things that we see about the way that God does family is that people that are presently the enemies of God are not necessarily the enemies of God in perpetuity. People that are right now far from God, people that are right now in a distant land spending their money in wayward living will not be enemies forever. That God is not just some divine hitman that takes joy in merely killing everybody that presently opposes him, he'd much rather convert them. And so we see this great, not just care for the family that's there, but invitation to family. Ezekiel 33, tell them, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? Paul was a man that was ruining households, actively dragging Christians out of their homes. And Jesus knocks him off a horse, not to throw him away, but to turn him around. So what you and I see is that this vision of family extends far beyond the people that we see as presently a part of God's family now. It changes the way that you and I interact with those that are actively opposed to him. Because that's what God did for us, y'all. There is nobody that is breathing right now. You do not know a person that could not be a potential family member in God's kingdom. And here's what I love. Here's what we see in the example 
of Christ is he models this so well with his actual family. In John 19, on his way to the cross, he's dying to make the world, to give them an invitation into God's family. But even in the midst of that spiritual work, he doesn't see it as being in competition with him caring for the family that God gave him here on this earth. So as he's on his way to the cross, he says this, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. On his way to the cross, he made time to care for the most important woman in his life at the time. How much more you and I on our way to the study on Saturday night when it feels like we're going to die because we're not as far in our sermon as we thought that we were. These aren't in competition, y'all. We can do both. But Jesus didn't just care for his mom in this way. He didn't just look out for her future. While he was on the cross being actively murdered, Jesus prays that the Father wouldn't kill those that are trying to kill him, but that the Father would forgive those that are trying to kill him and bring them as a part of the family. God loves his family too much to leave them unprotected and uncared for, and God loves his enemies too much to leave them without the rope for rescue. I say all of this to say... um, As pastors or as those preparing to be pastors, um, it's easy for us to neglect our families. Um, And so I want to make sure we have a vision for family. But it's also easy for us to sell our church short on the way that we treat them as our family. And so what that means is that, pastor, your job, your pastorate is never a stepping stone to another one. You don't trade up families. God may call us at times, but when he does, it should be filled with tears because the people that we serve should have our hearts. This is not a career. This is not a ladder. This is us caring for the family of God. If you, like me, are a better pastor then you are a husband. Um, You may need to take a step back and to assess your qualifications for a pastorate and how it is that you understand the family of God. I said that first one was my longest point, but I lied to you. Um, These last two are going to be really, really, really short. Uh, The application that I'd give is just this. Stop worrying and start working. The past is gone. There's nothing we can control about that. But what you and I have with our families is the present. Ecclesiastes 11.4 says this, one who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. So here's where we start. Four Ps 
Um, the very first one is this, prioritize. The best advice that I've gotten in pastoral ministry has been this. The church can get another pastor, but your wife cannot get another husband, and your children cannot get another father. Make your decisions accordingly. Redefine excellence. If you're in seminary preparing right now for pastoral ministry, and you work in a church, and you have a family of your own, Excellence may not be getting A's in every class. Excellence may be, at times, leaving some letters on the table to make sure that you take care of the people that are most important to you. 2.65 GPA from Dallas Theological Seminary. And I wear that with a badge of honor because I'm still married and my wife still loves me. Sermon preparation, do your work early and be diligent. Don't let anything crowd that out. There's lots of things that you can do, um, but that is one of the most important things that we do. Don't make your family pay for it because of negligence and laziness. Do your work. If you don't do your work, get up early before they get up so that when they get up, they, they have the best of you. Shepherding. Here's just one thing that I've learned. Sometimes emergencies in the life of the church, when they really come up, they will affect both me and my wife. So when we go out to dinner, one of the things that I've done in order to prioritize uh, my family uh, is I do my best to leave my phone at home. Uh, Because if it's that big of an emergency where it will affect my wife and I, they have my wife's phone number and they'll call her, uh, but they know my wife and they ain't going to call her unless it's really an emergency. <laughs> Prioritize your family. You'll have applications that you can use there too. Here's the next P. Uh, pastor your family. Let them feel the benefit of your presence. Take initiative spiritually until they are annoyed by it. The things that stick with people or the things that presently annoy them. My parents are Nigerian, uh, so what that means is that they don't value punctuality, uh, but they value relationship with God. And I remember being a kid and being so frustrated because I was late to practice or I was late to somewhere that I had to be. And one thing that we did not skimp on, one thing that we did not rush through was singing songs to the Lord in the morning, prayer, and time in God's Word. And although I was frustrated back then, it annoyed me. It stuck with me. Pastor your family, not just by teaching sound doctrine, but teaching the things that are in accordance with sound doctrine. Here's what I mean by that. I've got a 16-month-old daughter, and we started off very early trying to read her the Jesus Storybook Bible because I really wanted her to get that. And what I found out was that um, she didn't pay attention. She really didn't care the whole like plot line, right, the setting, the rising tension, the kind, like she just doesn't grasp all of that yet. Uh, so she doesn't listen. But in the past month that I spent that I was off and I was at home each night to give her a bath and to put her down, what I found out uh, was that most, what's most valuable, the most valuable instruction that I can give her right now 
um, is to say, hey, Ava, uh, please don't drink the bath water. <laughs> but the only way you come to that realization is if you're present during bath time. So pass to your family, be present. Three, pray. This is when you're absent. Your prayers for your family uh, should match the beating of your pulse. They should be consistent and constant. One of the things that my wife and I have done is uh, we have made the commitment not to pray every day, but the commitment that we've made is that we want to pray today. What that It may be semantics, but it helps me not to feel guilty when I fail and I miss a day. It helps me to say, okay, I missed a day, but it's fine because the commitment that we made was to pray today. So as long as it is today, me and her are going to sit down and pray. That may not do anything for you, but it's freed me of a lot of guilt. Uh, and then lastly, don't just prioritize pastor, pray, uh, but play with them. Enjoy them. Find things that your family loves to do and do it with them. My wife and my daughter love outside. I hate outside. The usefulness of outside for me is that it is on the way to inside. But I find a way. I want to enjoy them and to make sure that they get a chance to enjoy you. Uh, don't let everybody else enjoy you. Um, and your family gets a vegetable when you come home. Make time. Rearrange some things. And then lastly, as I'm over my time already, just a little bit of inspiration. We started off with vision. If you don't know what you have, you're going to misuse what you got. Know what you have. Two, pastoring. Your family uh, is not a competitor. It is a qualifier and a sculptor. Three, stop worrying and just start working. And then lastly, uh, I want you to know this. History is a story of unintended consequences of faithfulness. Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, uh, 11, 5 and 6, just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so also you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening do not let your hand rest, because you don't know which will succeed, whether the one or the other, or if both of them will be equally good. Give God a little. It's not about your intelligence. It's not about the intensity. It is about your intentionality. Give God a little and be surprised at what he'll do with a lot. Here's what I mean when I say history is a story of unintended consequences. And I'm going to end with this story. I started reading this book um, called uh, How We Got to Now. And it's this book about six innovations that changed the world. The first innovation was this. Glass. Glass was discovered by accident. When high heat hit sand, it created this glass. Well, folks found out that they could make glass, and so their thing was, hey, let's use this for bottles. Then after that, people started to toy with that glass, and what they found out was, hey, if we bend it this way, it can create a magnifying glass, which we can put on a page with small print and read it. 
Well, then folks found out, well, if we tweak it a little more, we can put it on our faces and it turns into glasses. Then people found out that they were nearsighted and couldn't read. Well, then they found out, hey, if we tweak this a little bit more, we can create a microscope and a telescope. So this discovery of glass helped folks to be able to see their place in the world, just how small they are, but also it helped them to see things at the microscopic level. Oh, germs, this is how we get sick. Then mirrors. Then they found out, hey, we, we can melt this thing down and we can make it really, really hard Five upper glass. Hey, we can make this really, really hard and really, really clear, and we can shoot lasers down this glass, and it can create this thing called the Internet, where these fiber optic cables can take lasers all across the world, and our world can connect at the way that it does now. I say this because the first person that found that small piece of glass had no idea the potential that laid there. But history is not a, it's a story of unintended consequences. It's us saying, let's be faithful with what's right in front of me, and who knows what God will do with it. Ladies, gentlemen, pastors, those that are training, we have families. There's amazing potential in us being faithful in what God has provided right in front of us. Let's be faithful to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we're grateful for your word. We pray that you would help us to prize our families, Father. Help us not to covet families that we don't have, but to make the most of the ones that we do have, Father. Would you fill us with a renewed vision for what it is that you want to do through our families. Help us as normal pastors to be extraordinary family men. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.